Let me read the scriptures for us. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in troubled times. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought devastation on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. God is our ever-present help in troubled times, in times of trouble. In our own country, we've surpassed 100 deaths in four months to a disease we barely knew about at the beginning of the year. 100,000, sorry. <laughs> the world and local economy is on a roller coaster and not a fun one. People are scrambling to make ends meet. Parents and children and marriages are struggling. Institutions like businesses and churches and nonprofits are trying desperately to lead well in uncertain time. And governments at their best are trying to protect and at their worst just trying to posture. People are getting angry. And armed militias in state houses and on streets almost exclusively peaceful presence, but with symbols and threats of war and violence. And yet still, even in those peaceful things, screaming protesters, defying police orders, and civil dialogue is declined to what can only be described as grotesque. Somehow, a pandemic has become partisan. And trust in institutions has vanished. The judiciary, law enforcement, the press, voting, the church, even medicine. We are watching vehemence and accusations and motives question on how to count dead human beings that bore the image of God. As if counting was about politics and not love. And I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that's where we are. If you know a bit of philosophy, it sure looks like Nietzsche has won and it is all will to power. And I haven't yet mentioned Ahmaud Aubrey, who was tracked down and murdered, or Breonna Taylor, who was shot in her bed, or George Floyd, the utter tragedy and horror of a bound man 
calling for his mother and begging to breathe for eight minutes with a knee on his neck. By an institution, a person in an institution, or a people in an institution that claims to protect and to serve. And then there's the uprisings and the rallies that follow in the wake of all this, many of them peaceful, but some with beatings and looting and bullets, rubber and reel, and tear gas and murder and provocation, some from the police and some from the protesters, violence with word and weaponry. Some police and some protesters need to be arrested for crimes, perpetrators who took innocent lives, and some civic leaders and community leaders need to step down or be removed from their duties. And some need to be promoted and given more and more leadership because there have been incredible peaceful protests and police cooperation. I was downtown yesterday, and the words most repeated by those who were gathering us was love, peace, and unity. And I watched as protester after protester would pass by a police officer and thank them for being there. Even if passionately energized in anger and grief and fighting for freedom and justice, there has been a cautious kindness among many police and protesters, both in Reopen and in Black Lives Matter rallies. But these, my friends, are what the sons of Korah, the writers of this lyric, say are troubled times. And they tell us that in these troubled times, God, the creator and the sustainer and the redeemer of the world, is an ever-present help in these times of trouble. Call it hostility. Korah's sons concentrate first on the hostility that is natural, a hostility of nature. The earth gives way, right? The mountains are moved the heart, into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam. The mountains tremble and it's swelling. And we're familiar with this in the Carolinas, aren't we? Hurricanes and tornadoes, all too familiar to us. And we know the ruthless forces of wind and waves. But mostly the psalm is not about the hostility of nature. They spend more time, the sons of Korah, on the hostility of nations. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. I want to be clear about the translations of nations and nation states and kingdoms and things like that because they don't, they don't actually, it's not a one-to-one correlation to our day. Nations is the word here for goyim, or people groups, ethnicities. The nations here are non-Jewish people groups. The term is fundamentally ethnic. And the kingdoms are more civic in orientation and in nature, but back in the day, they were also very much tied to Goyim as well. So the raging and the tottering of this world is, about, is, is not just about earthquakes and tsunamis. It's about ethnicities and countries or kingdoms, not quite nation-states of our day, but something like that. And that is where the warring and the artillery and the chariots and the spears and the bows are having their hostility. These raging ethnicities and earth-rumbling kingdoms strike the same kind of fear as the tsunamis, and they create the same kind of trouble and require the same kind of divine help. These raging ethnic trouble is not simply a threat to God's people. It is also, and hear this, an opportunity for our God to show off and show out his power and his love and his mercy in this world that all the earth would exalt him. 
So it's not just a threat to the church, but an opportunity to, be, to, to let God be shown forth out from us to do what the sons of, of, of Korah sing us to do, to trust him and to trust his help that he could heal the hostility of nations, of ethnos, of peoples. Do I even need to say this, that the raging ethnicities, hostility about this modern term we call race has been ravaging the church in our country since its inception? There's a ton of stuff I could say about police, civics, brutality and riotousness that could encourage us and, and some that would make our heads swim and stomachs turn, all of us. But the one thing that still catches me off guard is when I hear people say that they are surprised by the raging ethnicities. I don't know if it's Satan's work to keep us too distracted or self-centered, or I don't know if it's a defense mechanism to, to actually uh, not deal with the uncomfortable reality of racial trauma in America. I really don't know, and I, I kind of don't care as much as I do about uh, yielding to what verse 8 says, is to come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolation on the earth, to come and see that God is going to deal and end the ethnic violence in this world. That the ethnoses, the ethnicities rage, and they rage in the church and in, this, in, in, in civic reality as a whole. Y'all, 11 o'clock Sunday morning is not the most segregated hour because some people like to clap on one and three, and some like to clap on two and four. It's because churches, and we just have to admit this, especially white churches, didn't allow folks to join them in worship unless they were on the slave balconies, and sometimes not even that. And it wrecked the church. It was the raging ethnos. Y'all, the Southern Baptist Convention was started, the largest Protestant denomination in America was started with this segregation in mind. And so was the Southern Presbyterian Church, which becomes the PCA. Our very own, my very own ordination is held there. They started with segregation at its core. It's not all it started with. But it is not inaccurate to call these the Confederate Baptist Church or Confederate Presbyterian Church. This is not a revisionist history. It is just part of our story of the ethnos's raging. Please, friends, we don't need to deny or diminish this, these hard realities. It's okay. Because of who our God is, when we can stop and see that he has come to bring desolation to that. Because we're not just victims of the nation's raging, we are participants in it. And it's fundamental to the fall. And it's fundamental to God's redemption. Many folks in our midst and outside of our midst have given themselves to learn and to listen. We have realized that because of Jesus, learning about any of our personal or even systemic participation in any kind of racist reality are, are not a threat to our identity, but a beautiful gift like the confession of sin, a gift so that we can keep following Jesus more fully fueled by his grace and mercy. It is part of the warp and whoop of the gospel that God has come to heal ethnic hostility. It's just part of it. And that's why hostility isn't the defining reality of this passage or the gospel we proclaim. But hope is. In Psalm 46, and I'm about to read Ephesians 2 as well, the poet and the pastor, Paul, match hope with hostility. 
both in nature and in nations. The raging waters of natural hostilities get met by God with a river whose streams make glad the city of God. This is amazing. So, so you know, Jerusalem doesn't have any river with tributaries in it. There is an underground stream, but that's it. So these, this is metaphorical waters. This river water uh, meets the tumult and the hostility of waters that are, that are, that are incredibly charged. And the river makes those charged waters calm, not the charged waters make the calm waters tumultuous. You've got to love this image that, that God's work in the world, instead of the calm waters being disrupted by the torrents, because God is in the midst of those waters, they outcalm the torrent. Could we dream about what that metaphorically might mean in our life together, in Redeemer and with our neighbors? That the calming water of Jesus' presence in our own lives and our own hearts would deal with the torrent of racial hostility right at the heart of Redeemer, Winston-Salem, our own families, all of that. But it also works with the ethnos rage too, the, the nation's rage, the kingdom's totter. But he utters his voice and the earth melts. The voice of God melts ethnos and civic hostility. The poet tells us that all the anger and violence is met with another kind of matching, but different kind of violence. He breaks the bow and shat bow and shatters the spear. He burns with chariots of fire. He burns the chariots with fire. It's kind of this God-ordained violence that is violence against violence, violent against violence. A hostility that ends hostility by being hostile to hostility. A rage that ends the rage. And only God can pull that off to make wars cease to, end of the, to the end of the earth by his own warring against war and weaponry. This is why the Christian church has always been a nonviolent activist community. Because we know that justice is in his and judgment is in his hands and not ours to take up. But that God will rule and reign and not be mocked that his love and his power and the clarity and beauty of his kingdom will bring desolation to the warring. He will pursue justice and it will end in peace. And in some amazing way that only the divine uh, the presence can do, that only God, the triune God can do, he can fight fire with fire and end fire. And the, and the poet asks us to marvel at how God would do this. He doesn't explain how. It certainly is true in all the scriptures that we're not supposed to be doing it. But he simply says, behold. And it ends with a mystery of how he will bring peace, but a promise that he will. And if you fast forward just a little bit, Pastor Paul, writing in, uh, writing in Ephesians, he picks up on this ethnic hostility theme as one of the core realities of the Old Testament and New Testament, and we've experienced it in Romans, and it's all over the Bible. It is the end of Revelation where, in fact, ethnicities are, ethnic hostilities are healed, and it ends with Jesus. Listen to Ephesians 2, for he, Jesus, himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through his cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
and he came and preached peace to you who were far off. That's all the goyim. And for those who were near, and that was all the Jews. Friends, this is the gospel that Jesus kills ethnic hostility in his own body. That violence that has required, the, the, the violence that was required to vanquish violence is a violence that he took on in his own body. That George Floyd's murderers, murderous, murderer's sin is taken on Jesus' body. And that David Dorn's murdered body is taken, and the murderer has taken on the sin in Jesus' body. And at the cross, Jesus reconciles us to one another and to the Father. Friends, the hope of our hope for the end of racial hostility is simply this. Our participation in and, and, and living out our union with the Lord Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace and the Lord of all the ethnos, who will be exalted in all the earth. Christians are commanded to respond to injustice both by doing justice and loving mercy. It's a crazy game of calling someone to repentance and, and embracing fully any inkling of humility in you or in another. I need to keep learning and, and repenting and learning and where I'm raging wrongly. I got an inbox chock full of comments from, from things that I have not done that I probably could have done or things that I have done that I could have done differently. I was doing too much or too little of this. And here's the problem. Besides the fact that they could both possibly be right. My own solution for this is fighting for self-justification. And yet what I'm called to do is return to the Lord and beg for mercy and see what's true to keep doing justice as best as I can see it and offer kindness and mercy amid it all. That I won't retaliate and respond with my own rage, but with justice and love. That I'd be able to so heavily rely upon Jesus and that I would be able to do that together. The God of justice and love would catch me as I collapse upon him, which would give me absolute courage to speak up for and fight for what's right, and absolute grace and patience for myself and for others as we try to learn how to love together well. Because we're not going to get it right every time. We're not going to get it completely right any time. And of course, always being really to repent wherever we can over and over and over again. We do justice. We have affection. We love mercy. And we try our best to walk humbly before our God. And all of our previous efforts, they matter. But they don't merit anything. Our God is the river or in the river and the Lord over all the hostility. He is the justice melting, injustice melting God of the universe and is calling us to more and more and more of Him and His kingdom because He loves us. And so, where I want to end in this, in this last section, is to lift up the hope of who Jesus is, but also talk about this humility that is required of us. It is completely radical that in this psalm, our response to racial tension in our day and age is not just to acknowledge the hostility and have deep and profound hope in our Savior, but to actually humble ourselves in light of it all. Be still and know that I am God. That is not a call to a good, quiet time. 
It is a call to awe, to be still and know that He is God, that He will be exalted among the ethnos, the nations. He will be exalted in all the earth. Awe of desolation that He is prepared to bring to those who continue to perpetuate ethnic hostility unless they would bend the knee to His mercy. The stillness here is not a sweet hour of prayer, but a wide-eyed taking in of the incredible justice and love of God and His sovereign reign, the one who will be exalted among the ethnic rage and all ethnic injustice. Humility. One of the hardest things we can ever have is what we're called to. And so, Redeemer, it's just okay to say, We're a predominantly white Southern church with roots in slavery and segregation. And just to be humble about it. And humility might have us hush and listen, might have us act. It's not a narrative to resist, but one to yield to, knowing full well that God melts us in His repentance. And He makes the waters calm and the warring over. And so we can be still in our humility, knowing that Our brothers and sisters have the right to be heard without prejudice, without preparing a response, without being dismissive, without saying you have to buy everything hook, line, and sinker, without judgment. Just be still and silent. Keep humbling ourselves. It is the kind of perpetual posture of the Christian life. We've done a lot over the past years, especially since Mother Emanuel, and I'm so glad for it. And it's like all sanctification. You keep realizing there's more to grow in because Jesus is that much more amazing than we thought he was. And he wants so much more from us. And you don't have to agree on everything in the end. But we're all going to agree one day when the Prince of Peace is exalted in the earth and all will be made clear. And one of the guaranteed realities of our posture then will be humility and awe and worship, and none of us will be claiming how right we are about any of this stuff, but we will be proclaiming how amazing our Lord is. See, the rightness or the righteousness here is not ours to dole out, but to receive. There is no one in, there's no person in the world that loves black lives more than Jesus does, or blue lives or life at all, like God does. And please remember that nations rage, ethnoses rage in particular ways against particular lives, depending on kind of some foundational stuff in their histories, whether it's the Hutu or the Tutsis, or the Amara or the Tigri, or the Bosnian, the Serbs, or the Goths, or the Celts. In our country in particular, there's a historic devaluing of black and brown, and I would add female lives. And it is yet a larger backdrop of a violence. America was started in Violence and vandalizing protests with a massacre to follow. America is one of the nations that rages. It's not all America is, just like any other country in the world. It has some amazing realities to it, and I am glad to be one. But we are of the nations that will be humbled before this Prince of Peace where he's exalted above all the nations. And the humility of silence is what follows in repentance. Because grace always flows downhill. There's a refrain in this passage. It's a refrain that kept bugging me. The Lord of hosts, which is a war term, Sabaoth, uh, the Lord of hosts is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our fortress. By the way, this is like Luther's favorite psalm right here. This is mighty fortress is our God. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why the God of Jacob? The term Jacob means supplanter. Why not the God of Abraham or Isaac or Israel, what Jacob's name was turned into? No, the sons of Kor, with their lyrical genius, have us singing about God who would vanquish and protect and forgive and bring restoration to Jacob the trickster. That name. Do you see the irony and the hope here and the encouragement to humility? God promised to be gracious to Jacob. That means there's not just hope for an ethnos or a nation with a legacy of being oppressed. That means there is hope for an ethnos with a legacy of oppressing. Can you believe how amazingly gracious God is to do such a thing? That he didn't just destroy the Southern Presbyterian Church in America? That he was long-suffering in patience through the power of his son? That he would destroy its own chariots and shatter its own spears? that our forefathers used to usurp the very kingdom of God? That's not all they did, but they did do that. That in Christ, God would not ultimately count our communal heritage of racism against us? That our individual struggle to understand our black and brown brothers and sisters would not be left to our own, but that we would have God in the midst of the river of the city, helping us, growing us, teaching us again His ways? Through his forgiveness, he would restore us to himself and to the very people we've been raging against with one another. This is a kindness beyond measure. This is the gospel of Jesus and that he would now make us instruments of his love and justice and peace. That he would beckon us once who were enemies of his kingdom to be people who now participate in the breaking down of hostilities in our land and our day. Praise be to the king of power and mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ. The God who would forgive and transform not just the hostility of others, but forgive and transform the hostility in us. It is an amazing grace. There is so much good news that Jesus is doing here. So we keep swimming in the river that makes us glad and keep being in awe of the God who is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And what we will experience is a taste of heaven. I really want you to stay on because Kurt Anderson sent Pastor Tripp and I a gift and I've sent it um, or sent Pastor Tripp and me a gift and um, it's a it's a YouTube video about and it's a taste of heaven and so we're going to postlude with that um, but it, it is amazing grace sung again in 50 different languages it was sung for COVID but it just works perfectly for this song that the reason we're united and that the nations will stop raging and the hostilities of ethnicity will end is as we yield to the reign of the God of justice and the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus. Amen.